Hi, and thanks for listening to LockPod. Today I'm joined by Lockbox's CMO, Jenny Hall. We're over the moon to be joined by Sir Robin Knox Johnston, who was the first person to sell solo non-stop around the world. He's also changed the world of sailing by launching Clipper Ventures in the 90s and gives people the chance to challenge themselves to take on the circumnavigation. His story is incredibly inspiring. So, Robin, thank you very much indeed for joining us on LockPod today. I suppose the only way to really start this uh, this story is to find out how you really discovered your love for sailing in the sea. Oh, I, I don't remember. It, it came upon me when I was eight years old. So, um, really, my whole life has been dictated by an eight-year-old. Well, I was already keen on it anyway. I was keen on boating. And um, the Merchant Navy really was the ideal career for me. Uh, and, of course, my company had a couple of ships so they took the crew off and manned it entirely with officer cadets, uh, which was a fantastic training because we had to qualify as able seamen as well. So we, we really were taught properly. But they also gave us a waiver for sailing and a couple of dinghies. And one of those dinghies, as far as I was concerned, was my property. And if anyone dared take it out, they got a very growling Knox Johnson on their shoulder because that was my dinghy. And... I think my crew, uh, Jan Simon, um, claims, I think with justification, that I capsized in every pause east of Suez. If I denied that, I'd be guilty of perjury. But um, we did have an awful lot of fun sailing together in the various ports we went to, like Mombasa, Dar es Salaam, Matwara. I mean, just anywhere we could launch the dinghy and go sailing, really. And what was the point, Robin, where you decided that You'd love to sail around the world, non-stop, single-handed. That came much later on. I'd already built my boat in India and sailed her home via Arabia or Muscat, uh, East and South Africa. And um, we ran out of money in South Africa, so we all got jobs for about eight months. I was captain of a ship going up and down the coast and then stevedoring, uh, anything to earn money to buy the food to get home. My brother went off and got a job with an insurance company because that's what he did. And the third member of our crew was a Sparks radio operator. He went back to sea as a radio operator. At the end of eight months, we regrouped and off we went again, down to Cape Town and then home, non-stop to um, Gravesend. But it was whilst doing that that Chichester went around the world with one stop. And, of course, that was an amazing voyage at the time. And then the next year, Alec Rose went and stopped once, uh, twice. Australia and New Zealand. And really, it only left one thing to do, and that was to go non-stop. So I wrote to 52 companies and said, look, I've got this great idea. I was first officer on the line of Kenya at the time. And of course, very hard to follow up sponsorship when you're away. So I got absolutely nowhere. Well, not totally. I did get 120 cans of beer from tenants and a five-pound voucher from Cadbury's. So it, I was not totally unsponsored. That's fantastic. I'm sure Cadbury are reflecting on that now, thinking that was the best investment we ever made. Quite a few at the end. The BBC said, why didn't I ask for a camera? I said, well, I did actually. Here's your letter saying no. Same with ITV. They said, but we'd have given you one. I said, well, you didn't. But I did ask. Anyway, so there's very little uh, movie at all of of my trip, only when I saw people. Um, And that wasn't often. And... um, and the finish, of course, the BBC did cover that. But uh, otherwise, I've had no film of, of the sort of part from stills. What made you think that um, you could do it, Robin? Like, what was it that you 
that inspired you to kind of, I guess, back yourself that that you would be able to achieve such a such an incredible um, thing to do? Well, Jenny, if you think about it, um, I'm a master mariner, so my life's been spent at sea. Uh, so navigation is my job. So that's not a problem. I'd already sailed that boat some 18,000 miles, including non-stop from Cape Town to London, 77 days, which just gave me a lot of experience of how much food I'd need. Uh, I knew the boat inside out because I built it, and I'd sailed a lot. I looked at the other people who, who entered. There were nine of us in total. Uh, some were sponsored, some weren't. And yeah, I didn't have the fastest boat by far, but I had a really seaworthy little boat. And I thought, well, you know, if I just keep plugging on, uh, I probably won't win, but at least I'll have achieved it. And then I can go back to sea saying, well, I've got that under my belt. But, you know, people would say, do you think you're going to make it? I said, I have no idea. And that's what put the papers up because they expect you to say, yeah, I'm going to beat Chichester. He said, well, I can't say that. I don't know. And so they decided I wasn't very determined. And um, as I said to one of them, I said, you never faced me in the boxing ring, pal. You never dared say that. <laughs> and, um, so it was, no, I I felt that I had a good chance of doing it. It was the, the time in life where here was this fantastic opportunity for which I was actually rather well trained. And I thought, I've just got to go for that. I mean, I cannot think of when I'm over 90, looking in the shaving mirror, not that I intend doing that, and thinking, I wish I'd done it. You you have to grab these opportunities when they offer. It meant losing my job at sea with the company. And they told me, you know, well, we can't keep you um, going off sailing, which was fair. Um, although once I finished, they did say, well, you can come back now. But um, it was just one of those opportunities where you just have to take the gamble. Yeah, and, you know, reflecting on 312 days at sea, it's a very different world now. How did you cope with that level of kind of solitude and how did it impact you mentally? Um, well, we hadn't invented mental health problems in those days, so I didn't have it. Um, the fact of the matter is I was busy. Um, you are busy on a boat. You're, you know, constant maintenance. You're navigating. You're steering for quite a lot. You've got to feed yourself. So you are busy. And, you know, when you've been going for a month, say, and you think, oh, no, I don't want to go on with this. Um, and you say, well, wait a minute. I haven't got the right to let down the me that spent the last month getting this far. Therefore, let's just get this day over and let's see how we feel tomorrow. And inevitably by tomorrow, I'm feeling really good. And off we go again. So about once a month, I had a bad day. And the rest of the time, I'm actually thoroughly enjoying myself. Did you, what's your, what was your lowest point, Robin, on that trip? Lowest point, uh, psychologically, I think, departing and looking at my mother's face. But then I said, well, you've got three more sons, you know, you can afford to lose one. Um, that was probably the worst. Um, physically, there was a storm in the uh, roaring 40s between uh, South Africa and Cape Town where I thought the boat was going to break up because uh, you're just being smashed and being rolled. And I, I remember just standing there thinking, she can't take this. I've got to find a way of making her comfortable. And eventually I decided the best thing to do was put the stern to the waves. And all I had was a coil of two-inch polypropylene. It was my last purchase before I left. 17 pounds it cost. My best ever investment. 
and I put it out in a great big bite over the stern. She just swung round the stern too and lay very, very comfortably. And from then on, when I had really bad weather, I used to put that warp out. And the thing about the warp is that the danger in the Southern Ocean is you run down the front of the waves. <coughs> As you do, your rudder ceases to bite so effectively. You tend to broach around in front of the wave, and if it's a breaking wave, it'll roll you and break your mast. The Golden Globe race off two years ago, five people suffered from that. And I did tell them, for goodness sake, get something out the back. Well, they didn't listen. And they all had to withdraw because they broke their mast. And so Haley, after that, was perfect. I mean, yes, waves would break over her, but I was down below having a sleep because there's nothing else I can do to the Winston sides. So I used to catch up on my sleep. And the little old girl, she just bounced along, the old wave coming over the top. There was one time I was on deck between New Zealand and Cape Horn, and I saw this really big wave coming 80 plus feet, breaking at the top. Now that's dangerous. And I was on deck, and I realized I had no time to get below. It was going to swoop the deck. So I climbed the rigging and got out of the way, and this wave broke over the boat. And <laughs> seemed like hours. I was sort of hanging on the rigging. Um, no sign of my boat, it's disappeared on the water. Me and two miles, so no land in 1,500 miles in any direction. And then she bounced up, and uh, unfortunately not the hatch open, so the next two hours were spent bailing out about two tons of water that had got down below. But it cleaned the bilges, so there was a plus side to it. Your positivity is inspiring, it really is. You know, you're very relaxed about the whole thing. Did you, when you were at sea, obviously, for that long period of time, were you aware of what you were coming back to? You know, a hero's welcome and fame. Your life basically changed dramatically over those 312 days. Did you have any idea? No, I had no idea at all because I lost the radio after two and a half months. So the next news I got was off New Zealand and they told me who had dropped out and where Matissia was, very experienced Frenchman. In fact, if you look at it, he and I were the most experienced entrants. They had a bigger boat and therefore could sail faster. And I thought, oh, I'm in the lead. Um, well, I'm going to hang on to it. But then I had absolutely no news for four and a half months. And no one had news of me. In fact, they, they wrote a rather poor victory, actually, I thought. I could have written a much better one uh, because they decided I could disappear. And then off the Azores on Easter Saturday, I ran into a line of ships and all I had was my signal lamp. So I called up 18 ships and eventually got a British one. About uh, 20 past seven, I finished calling and I asked him to report me to Lloyd's. M-I-K is the code. And um, he said, ah, which means we'll do. Um, my receiver worked, so I listened to the BBC next morning. Nothing on the BBC said that oh, he hasn't reported me. In fact, he had. And at an hour and a half after I'd finished signaling him, my brother answered the phone to be told I'd been sighted after four and a half months. In fact, the Sunday Mirror actually stopped the presses and changed its front page, which is quite an expensive operation. Well, of course, I knew nothing about this, so I'm carrying on. Now, there's a wonderful missions to seaman padre in Falmouth, David Roberts, a Welshman, and um, I'd got to know before I sailed. And he was giving a sermon that day, and he leapt into the pulpit and said, Have you heard the news? Robin's been sainted. This is Easter Sunday, remember, and he said, most appropriate on the day of the resurrection. And then I went on with his sermon. So, um, but I didn't know it. I didn't know for another week that I'd been reported. Um, I didn't know I was still in the lead. Uh, I assume Matessia must be close. I didn't know what had happened to um, uh, Tetley and um, 
uh, what's his name, who cheated. Um, so I had no news at all, and I really only found out uh, that I was in the lead from a friendship about a week before I finished. So I didn't have time to think about it, really, because, you know, you're getting close to the UK. There's fishing boats all over the place. You're having to keep a, a much better lookout because you're near shipping channels. And you don't have time to think about it. You just say, well, let's get this boat in. Just let's get her in, tie her up, and then we'll think about what happens next. Robin, I've heard it being described as a, a voyage for madmen. Do you think you're mad? I think that's slanderous. And um, I think, actually, we were the same ones because we, after all, got away from the stupidity of modern society ashore. So no bureaucracy. We're free. We can make our own decisions. So we're not mad. Um, I do worry about people who think they are because, well, you've never seen life, chum. You don't realise the freedom we get on this boat. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk now a little bit about the work that you and William Ward have done to start uh, the Clipper race. I mean, it goes without saying, it's changed the lives of thousands of people. And Jenny and I have both been very fortunate to be a part of it uh, in different ways. Jenny did the circumnavigation. I took a media berth, I think, in 2005. And it was, you know, a life-changing experience for me. And I was only there a short time. Uh, But it stuck with me for life. Can you give me the background as to why you started Clipper and you know what really inspired you to help other people experience kind of what you did? I was um, in Greenland climbing with Chris Bonington and he told me how much it cost to climb Mount Everest. I thought, gosh, that's a lot of money. It was 40,000 plus. This is the nine, God, when was that? At 1990. Or was it later? Because it had been up there more than once. And um, I thought, that's a lot of money. What's the sailing equivalent, circumnavigation? wonder if we put together uh, boats, training, skippers, ports, could we give people the opportunity to the sailing equivalent? And it came out at that time about half the cost of climbing Mount Everest. So William and I got together, put some adverts in the papers, got 8,000 answers and thought, we better do this. Because having invented the idea, someone else is going to do it if you don't. So we ordered eight boats. Um, we had 11 months from ordering the boats to actually starting the first race. So we built the boats, we planned the route, we trained the crews, and then we set them off. And at the end of that first race, we thought, well, what do we do with the boats now? We thought, well, we'd better do it again. Well, that taught us the lesson, because you need longer to build up the crews, you know, to recruit them and everything else. So we weren't totally ready for that one. But by 2000, we got this more or less organized, and. Um, we started sort of making a small profit, which helped us sort of put more money back into the company. And 2002, we decided the boats needed replacing, and we were in sufficiently good position to be able to do that. And so we built the 68s, which had proved extremely successful boats, actually. We still used them for training. In fact, there's two out at the moment training. And um, then after they'd done four races, the style of round-the-world racing boats had changed. And I done the V-Lux in my Open 60. Said, you know, our boats are going to look more like that. So we built the next fleet, and that's the fleet we've got at the moment. So this is our third fleet in operation at the moment. And, um, you know, the boats are good. They, um, the present fleet are better at downwind sailing. And when we did the, far, the uh, Sydney Hobart the first time with the 70s, I took a 68. And only one of the 70s beat me, but then I sailed to my strengths. So um, since then, I've never come that close to beating. I, I think the most I've beaten since is five, 
And uh, that's very frustrating because the skippers get very cocky when, when they beat me. What do you most enjoy, Robin, about um, the clipper organisation? Because, you know, a huge amount of people go through it and do something that they never thought that they would ever be able to, to achieve. What is it that you enjoy seeing about those crew members come through and uh, the clipper experience? Um, that's it. I mean, it, it is the people, no question about it. And watching people who do a circumnavigation, looking at the beginning, apprehensive, inevitably, that's perfectly healthy. Um, good. They're remembering they haven't bought toothpaste. They better go and buy it. No shops out there. Um, but then watch them 10, 11 months later, and their self-confidence shows, the increase in self-confidence shows. And I remember the first race was a lady who given up a job, but it was held open. She was in PR in London. At the end of the race, I said to her, well, you're going back to those people? She said, no. I said, I've got enough confidence setting up my own business. And two years later in Liverpool, I said, how's it going? She said, honestly, Robert, best thing that happened. I'm my own boss, and I'm earning twice as much, and I'm loving it. And I thought, well, good on you. Well done. She said, but it was down to Clipper. I said, no, you had to do it too. You had to, you know, believe in yourself. And it's teaching people that they can take on far more than their original expectations. And that gives people a feeling of confidence that, hey, I can do that. Who tells me I can't? Someone told me I couldn't sail around the world, but I did it. Okay, so I can do this too. And you find so many of them come out of it like that. And that is so satisfying. And how have you, um, apart from the boats, obviously, have you changed the race at all? Is there anything that you've kind of tweaked as you've gone along or has it remained the same throughout the years? We reversed the route. We used to go through Panama early on and then go uh, west about. And we reversed it to go east about because that meant we could bring in Australia, uh, which has always been a very popular stop for the crews and is delightful. I mean, Aussies are annoying to themselves and fun with it. and. Uh, so I enjoy going to Australia. But um, it did mean we could do a uh, bring in different places on the way back. Um, so, but that's been really the basic change. I mean, there are, each race has slight changes. This port will go, that will come in. But on the whole, it takes more or less the same route. And as you know, Qingdao's been with us, what, 16 years? Is with us again. So we always got Qingdao in it, where we're made incredibly welcome by the Chinese. Um, we're looking forward to seeing them again soon too. What would your advice be to anyone who's considering going off and doing a, you know, a, a big goal or something they never thought they would do? Oh, believe in yourself. Um, you know, if um, if you think you can do it, don't be put off by the gainsayers because they they they'll put you off because they'll never risk it themselves and they don't want you to succeed because it makes them feel even worse about themselves. You know, it's a, if you believe you can do it, do it. And it's really, it, it's that, isn't it? If you've got the, something inside you says, I think I can do this. Well, go and find out. You may not succeed, but I'll tell you what, you'll come back a much better person because you'll learn more about yourself. And it's, um, there's a wonderful poem by an American, um, which goes, listen to the mustn'ts, child, listen to the don'ts, listen to the wouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts, 
Listen to the don't haves and listen close to me. Anything is possible. Everything can be. Shel Silverstein. And it's a brilliant poem. And believe in that. Believe in yourself. Don't believe the people who stand at the bar. They say, oh, you can't do it, old boy. It's too dangerous. It happened to me before I sell. I had the boat over in cars. I was in the Navy at the time. And the chap came up and said, you're this Johnny who thinks you're going to sell single-handed non-stop around the world. And I said, well, I'm going to try. He said, it can't be done in any case you couldn't do it. I said, you've never met me before. What a stupid remark. I said to him, you're not a school teacher, are you? He said, no, certainly not. Why? I said, because you'd be bloody depressed with your students. You can't say that. I said, I just effing have. I never saw him again. I knew Daddy went back to me. I told that Knox Johnson, that silly young man, doesn't know what he's talking about. I told him he couldn't do it. Well, perhaps people remembered he said that later. I bet he's regretting his words now. How often do you sail now, Robin? And do you actually still enjoy it? Or is it a bit more of a job for you now? Uh, how often do I sail? Not enough. Uh, I spent last week doing the Cows Classics in Suheli. Uh, four weeks ago, I was on a, a cruise with a lot of other boats down to the Scilly Islands. And now I'm looking at disappearing about the 12th of August for the rest of the month. Um, just cruising. My problem is gathering crew. <coughs> you know, if I take the big boat, and I sell my open 16 Volta Cruiser. But, you know, minimum three, really. Um, that's for mooring. I don't need them at sea, although it's nice to have someone to take over the watch. Um, and I enjoy company, too. Of the people I... They're good company on board the boat, and they're good company, and you're, you've got a nice crew, and you're enjoying yourselves. So I look for interesting people, not necessarily brilliant sailors, but People I can trust, people who wake me up if they're not sure. They don't wake me up, I snarl. They do wake me up, I never snarl, even if I've only had 10 minutes sleep, because if they're worried, then I should be worried. So, um, but so finding the crew who can get the time off, that's the main problem as we get back to work. Um, but, you know, once I've got a, a good crew, I can take seven comfortably on that boat. And I'm off. Away we go. Where we go? Well, we go to Alderney. Could go to Jersey, could go to Guernsey, could go down to the City Islands again, drop off somewhere on the way. Got enough time, might go to Scotland or Ireland. Just depends. You know where me and Katie are, and I'm pretty sure we can still do a payment. <laughs> I was just about to say, are we handing in our resignations now, Jenny? Or <laughs> You know something? I've taken a number of ex-tripper crew on the boat, and it's great because they do know what they're doing. And even if they haven't sailed for a few years, it very quickly comes back. But I know what I'm getting. I arrange their training. I set that program up. And so I know what I'm getting. And I know they've crossed the ocean. They've got experience. And so, and they're used to living in a confined place and getting on with people. So they make very good crews. And the training is ridiculously good. It's, it's amazing. I remember embarking on the training thinking, oh, my God. They sent me all the way up the mast, and I think it was to laugh at me. <laughs> it, was, it was to build confidence and teamwork, and it was you take a lot from it. But I was terrified. I've never been very good at heights. But you feel like you've achieved something at every point of the training. How do you kind of recruit the, the crew to be able to then pass that training on to complete novices? Putting you up the mast is only half of what we're teaching you. Um, yes, it builds up the confidence. But the other part of it is to make you realise if you're on a winch and you've got someone on a habit going up the mast, 
you've been up the mast. You know how important it is that you focus on that winch. You've got a life in your hands. And your life has been in someone else's hands. And that's what, that's what we're trying to teach. So what's the next dream, Robin? You don't strike me as the type to kind of just um, put your feet up and relax for the next few years. What's the, uh, what's the next big adventure? Well, I'm going to Carl shortly with Greg to pick up some life jackets. Um, we worked out it's cheaper to get, for me to take my river over to collect them than it is to send him over in a van. And frankly, he prefers going over in the river anyway, not Greg's like. And uh, so once we finish this, I'm off over to pick him up. Um, this afternoon, I'm sorting out a problem on my big boat. I won't bore you with the details, but it's not very nice. But Jay and I'll sort that one out. Um, tomorrow, I don't know, there's a few jobs that need doing around the boat. There always is. I'll probably, you know, I live in Portsmouth, the boat's in Gosport, so I use my rib as, as my taxi. And so I'll probably potter over and potter with the boat, some little job I've thought of that needs doing. And um, I say I might wander off uh, down the West Country in August. At the moment, I can't make plans at the moment for next year because I'm hoping we'll start the race in February. So if we do, of course, I'm tired of the race. Uh, if we don't, it's, well, it's going to be another delay, which isn't nice. But we're hoping we can get going again. And the vaccines certainly seem to be making it much easier. Philippines are beginning to open up, um, and that's what we're waiting for. And China, well, we've got very good contacts there, so we'll sort that one out. States, that's got a very good vaccination record now. So we think if people have got the two vaccinations and the tests, we're probably going to be able to sort it out. But uh, now is not the time to ask the question. The time to ask the question is nearer the time, if you see what I mean, when people are a bit more confident. Otherwise, yeah, I might do a route to run. Uh, I've done two. I'd quite like to get a small tram run, you know, about 40 feet, and just do the route to run. It runs from St. Marlowe. Um, it's a fabulous race. The French do organize very good races. It finishes in Guadeloupe, which is lovely. And, you know, that time of year, it's nice to get to the sun, you know. November, and uh, I wouldn't mind doing another one. Trouble is, they, they're ages, this lot. They say, oh, we better have your heart checked. I said, what's wrong with my heart? Well, we don't know. Good. Well, then why are you worrying about it? No, we'd like you to have your heart checked. Oh, I say, all right, we're going to have a heart check. Last time they did that to me, I went to have it checked, and I said, well, what I like, he said, keep pushing on that pedal thing. He said, right, I've got your racing driver level at the moment. You're still going all right. I said, right, can you just sign that? just so that I can get into this race, because it's nonsense. Health and safety. So BBC, BBC presenter saying, don't you think it's dangerous? It's his age, he might die on the ray. I think, darling, come here, I'll show you what's dangerous. Brilliant. Well, Robin, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely incredible speaking to you again. It's been a long time, but uh, it's been wonderful to hear your story. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Good talking to you both. Thank you, Robin. My pleasure, Jenny.